This episode of TGC's Word of the Week is brought to you by B&H Publishing, presenting The Storm-Tossed Family by Russell Moore, a new book about how the cross reshapes the home. Learn more at www.stormtossedfamily.com. There's a grammar to the gospel. In the gospel, the indicative always comes before the imperative. In the gospel, the way things are, statements of fact about who God is, always come first, before the imperative, how we should respond. This is TGC's Word of the Week, a sermon podcast from the Gospel Coalition. This week's sermon, The Grammar of the Gospel, was preached by Steve Rockwell at Holy Trinity Church in Cape Town, South Africa, on May the 13th, 2018. The text is Colossians chapters 1 through 3. Listen now to Steve Rockwell on the grammar of the gospel. Let me read from God's word together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that's come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing amongst you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Let me pray for us as uh, we turn our attention to these words. Dear Lord God, we do thank you that you are indeed a God who is working in your world through the gospel as it's bearing fruit, as it's being proclaimed. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who has not left us in the dark but rather you have revealed yourself to us, you've revealed your truth to us, you've revealed your plans of salvation for us. Lord, we thank you that you still speak to us, even today, even this morning, through your word. And Lord, we pray as we turn our attention to these words that you would, you would help us to listen, you would open our ears, you'd open our hearts, you'd open our minds, uh, so that we'd hear you speak to us, and in hearing that, we'd be changed. And we ask it for your sake and for your glory. Amen. Um, It's true. I'm Australian. Now, I I, I wonder when you hear that I'm Australian, I wonder if there's one word that pops into your mind, I wonder what that word might be. Don't don't say it. I think that's going to be best for everybody. But uh, particularly, uh, given... The performance of our cricket team in recent history. I'm guessing I'm pretty sure what word is going to come into your mind. Uh, and I understand that. I have to wear that. I've got to take that responsibility on myself. I get that. I get it. But we kind of do this, don't we? We, we, we tend to, we tend to kind of block people away and we kind of think, yes, one word, that's going to characterize them. That's going to summarize that kind of group of people. We do that all the time. If I said, what, what was the one word that came to your mind when you think about American? You know, I'm sure we could, or Donald Trump, you know, I'm sure we could, we could all come up with a word. We do that. 
The question we want to spend a bit of time focusing on this morning, though, is a far more important question than the one word for Australians or South Africans or French or British or American. The thing I want us to ponder about is what do you think the one word would be that would summarise the Christian? I mean, if you were to try and summarise your own life following Jesus or, or, or what one word do you think should characterise you or, or others as followers of Jesus? That's the question that I want us to spend a little bit of time thinking about this morning. Or, or perhaps let me frame it a different way for you. I wonder if we were to read the New Testament asking that question. Now, with that kind of question in mind, what word do you think would, would pop up? Or perhaps we just read Paul. Uh, if we just read through all of Paul's letters and we asked Paul that question, Paul, what's the one word that should shape me and characterize me and define me as a follower of Jesus? I wonder what that one word would be, what you think it might be. It would be a good exercise to do, wouldn't it? Uh, to read through Paul's letters asking that kind of question. And, and I suspect that if you were to do that, if you read through the New Testament or read through just Paul's letters, asking it that kind of question, you'll come to the conclusion that one word just won't be enough. One word won't be enough. You'll realise as you read through these letters, these New Testament letters, that over and over and over again, Paul chooses to use not one word to summarise the Christian faith, but three words. Three words that he so often packages together almost in a unit and he uses them at several different places throughout the New Testament, throughout his letters, to summarise the Christian life for us. These three words are faith, hope and love. Faith, hope and love. One word just won't do it. Faith, hope and love are what should characterise us as followers of Jesus. As I said, these three words come together as a summary of the Christian faith at several key points throughout the New Testament. And Colossians chapter 1, that I just read out to us, is an example of that. Have a look at what he says there again in verse, in verse 3 and onwards. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and the love that spring from the hope that's stored up in heaven for you and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Faith, hope and love. That's the way Paul chooses to summarise the life of these Colossian Christians. Uh, Paul's actually never met the Colossians. Uh, we know for a fact that Paul has never been to Colossae. He wasn't the one who started this church. Uh, we're told here actually in the letter, just in the verses that we read, verse 7 there, that they learnt the gospel from Epaphras. Epaphras was the one who began the church in Colossae. He was the one who established it. And, and now Epaphras has met up with Paul, probably in Rome, and, and, and he's telling him about the church in Colossae. Paul's never been there. And yet Paul writes to these guys, and as he writes to this Christian community in Colossae that he's never been a part of, he summarises what Epaphras has told him about them with these three key words, faith, hope and love. But it doesn't just summarise the Christian life and it doesn't just kind of summarise the way Paul talks about the Colossians. It actually 
structures what Paul will exhort the Colossians to throughout his letter. It's the things that Paul is going to encourage them in. Uh, As Alan said, I'm on faculty at George Whitfield College and it really is a great privilege. And one of my great joys and my kind of role and responsibility at George Whitfield College is to teach Greek to all the first year students. Now, for me, that really is a great joy. I know some of you are thinking that makes me a little strange, but trust me, we have a lot of fun doing this, uh, and it is a wonderful opportunity to help people dive deeper into God's Word and to understand God better through God's Word. I love it. I love seeing people's eyes open up uh, to the Scriptures more as they learn to read it in Greek. Raph is in my class and in my Greek class as he undertakes his Masters. So, Raph, stand up for a second. This is going to be fun. Stand up. You're on the spot here, brother, because I'm going to ask you a Greek question. We're going to see if you can get it. Of course, you realise he's not on the spot. I'm on the spot, right? Because if he gets this wrong, then it looks really bad on me. So, pressure's on here, Raph, right? Okay? I want to ask you the question, what's the difference between an indicative mood verb and an imperative mood verb? Ooh. Difference between the indicative and the imperative. Can you big loud voice? Give us give, turn around so everyone can see. Give everyone a big loud voice. Two second definition. Okay. Excellent. Full marks. You pass or no, you don't. You don't. You, you still have to sit your exam. That's okay. All right. Indicative mood. Statement of facts. Imperative mood commands what you should do. A response that's required. And, and, and as I, as I teach Greek to my classes, one of the things that I, that I want them to realize, one of the things I think we all need to realize is that there, there's actually a, a grammar to the gospel. There's a grammar to the gospel. In the gospel, the indicative always comes before the imperative. In the gospel, the way things are, statements of fact, about who God is, about who Jesus is, about what God's done for us through Jesus. Statements of fact always come first before the imperative, how we should respond. You see, you've got to understand what God has already done for you before you can respond to that. That's the way the gospel works. God acts first, indicative statements. He calls us to respond, imperative. The indicative is always before the imperative when it comes to gospel. That's a very important thing to realize, I think, because for every other religion in the world, that's reversed. You see, for every other religion in the world, the imperative comes before the indicative. Do this, do that, do this, do that, and then maybe you'll be right with God or you'll reach nirvana or whatever it is the religion's promising. You see, In every other religion in the world, the imperative, what we have to do first, comes before the indicative, the statement of the way things will be for you. But in the gospel, the grammar works the other way around. The indicative, statements of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, come before the imperative, how we should respond. And in fact, enable the imperative, empower the imperative. Now, it's not just that there's a gospel grammar that we need to understand, it's that that grammar actually shapes most of Paul's letters. For the majority, I don't know if you've ever realized, but, but for the majority of Paul's letters, the first half of the letter are all statements of fact. 
It's only actually in the back half of the letters that Paul ever asks us to do anything in response. Colossians is a great example of that. Just flick with me and we'll have a bit of a look through Colossians in the way that Paul works this out. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 15, for example. These great indicative statements of who Jesus is. Statement of fact. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation, the one through whom all things were made, heaven, earth, visible, invisible, power, authorities, the one for whom all things were made, the one who holds all things together, the head of the church, the firstborn amongst the dead, uh, the one for whom God is pleased to have all his fullness dwell. These are all just statements of fact. This is who Jesus is. This is what Paul starts off with. I want you to understand this. I want to remind you of who Jesus is. And I want to remind you of what he's done for you. Statements of fact going on there. Verse 19. He, he's reconciled. Oh, God has reconciled all things to himself through Jesus. Through Jesus' bloodshed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. Do you see? It's all just statements of fact. There's nothing we've done at all at this point in the letter. There's nothing we've been asked to do. This is just a statement of fact. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Paul wants to make sure that the Colossians, that we, as we read this letter, remind ourselves that Christianity actually is all about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Before it's how we respond to that. It's only in chapter 2 verse 6 that Paul first tells the Colossians to do anything Chapter 2, verse 6. It's the very first time he tells them to do anything. Have a quick look at it. This is what he tells them that they should do. Once they've understood who Jesus is and what he's done for them, how should you respond? Chapter 2, verse 6. This is what Paul says. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in your faith as you were taught, and be overflowing with thankfulness. Paul starts the letter by summarising what he's heard about the Colossians with the words faith, hope and love. He reminds them of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And then the first thing he tells them to do is dig your roots down deep into the faith. That's what he says. Dig your roots down deep into the faith. It's a, it's a, it's an agricultural metaphor, yeah. You, you know, uh, people were about to build a, a beautiful big garden out the front here. You, you know, people who are described as those people who have green thumbs. You know what I mean by that, yeah? They, they make everything look so pretty and beautiful in a garden. You know, you know that, don't you? My wife and I have brown thumbs, right? I'm just telling you. I don't know why things die in our presence, right? Our garden at the moment looks like it's it looks a mess. Everything's dead. People give us plants. People lovingly give us a plant as a present or something like that. And my wife and I, we're always very grateful for the thought behind the present. But we look at each other with that little look in our eye that says, I know that in three months' time this is going to be dead, right? Because, I mean, we just, I don't know, we, plants die in my presence. I have four sons, four boys. Uh, the oldest is 11. 
all the way down to three. I figure if I get to the end of that, the day, and all four of them are alive, then we're doing okay, right? I don't have time to keep plants alive at the same time. It just doesn't work for us, right? But you don't have to have a green thumb. You don't have to be a good gardener to understand Paul's metaphor here, do you? Dig your roots down deep. We all get that because it's the tree with the deepest roots that's the healthiest tree, isn't it? It, It's the tree with the deepest roots that bears the most fruit. It's the tree with the deepest roots that bears the best fruit. It's the tree with the deepest roots that that stands the test of the storm, that stays strong when the wind blows. Paul's saying, be that tree. Be that tree in your faith. Be that tree in your understanding of God and his word. Dig your roots down deep into the faith. Now, I take it in a group this size, in a church like this, there are people at different points in their walk in their Christian faith. Now, perhaps you're here today and, uh, and, and you're new, you're visiting. You're trying to figure out what Christianity is. Perhaps today is the very first time you've heard that Christianity is very different to every other religion in the world. That Christianity is actually all about who Jesus is and what he's done for us first before it's how we respond. Perhaps you've been here for for decades. Wherever you're at, I want you to think for a moment about what it's going to look like for you to start digging your roots down deeper into the faith. Because that's what Paul tells us that we should be doing. Perhaps for you, if you're here for the very first time looking into the faith, perhaps you're there in verse 6. So then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, maybe today would be the day that you did that for the very first time. Receive Christ Jesus as Lord. Understand who he is and what he's done for you and accept that. What a glorious day today would be if that was to happen for you. Maybe that's what it looks like for you today. To, to for the very first time, send some roots down into this faith. But as I said, others perhaps have been doing it for decades. What does it look like wherever you are at to dig your roots down deep? You're here. That's a good start. Let me encourage you to keep coming here. Because I know, Alan, I know this place. This is a church that's going to encourage you and help you to dig your roots down deep in the faith. Are you part of a small group Bible study during the week that meets? Because if not, then let me encourage you to be. Because that's a place where you're going to be helped to dig your roots down deep in the faith. Maybe for some of you, why not consider coming to study at college? Because that's a place, as you heard on the video, that's going to help you really dig your roots down deep into the faith. Maybe not come to college full-time, maybe come part, maybe do the explore course. Whatever it is, what's going to help you dig your roots down deep into the faith? Because Paul says, when you understand who Jesus is and what, you, what he's done for you, the first thing Paul calls the Colossians to do. The first thing he commands them to do, the first thing he commands us to do in response to understanding who Jesus is and what he's done for us is to dig our roots down deep into the faith. The second thing that he tells the Colossians to do 
is there in chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, he tells them not to do a few things in the rest of chapter 2. Don't let anyone judge you and don't be deceived and a few things like that. But the second thing he tells them that they should be doing is there in chapter 3, verse 1. Have a look at it. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Second thing you do, says Paul, when you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, the first thing is to dig your roots down deep into the faith. The second thing is to set your heart and your mind on things above. That's what Paul calls us to do. Set your heart and set your minds on things above. Now, why would you do that? Well, Paul tells us here that if you're a Christian, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, then your whole life, past, present and future, is wrapped up in Jesus. Did you notice that as we read those verses out? Have a look at it again. Verse chapter 3, since then you have been, past tense, raised with Christ. For, verse 3, you died, past tense. And your life is now hidden with Christ, present tense. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory, future tense. You see, your whole life, past, present and future, is wrapped up in Christ if you've put your faith and trust in him. And so Paul says, when you understand that, you set your heart and you set your mind on things above. Now, I don't know what occupies your heart and your mind. What is it that that keeps you awake at night? I suspect that if you're anything like me, our hearts and our minds are far too preoccupied with the things of this world, yeah? They're the things that worry us. They're the things that keep us up at night. The things of this life. Is it the finances, the bills, the work, the lack of work, the studies, the job, the marks, the kids, the future, the political climate, Day zero, land reappropriation, South Africa's future, the future for my kids in South Africa. What is it that occupies your heart and your mind? Is it about how to get out of South Africa? Is it about how to get to Australia? There's plenty of busy planes going that way. What is it? Paul says, set your hearts and your minds on things above not on the things of this earth. I remember very vividly uh, in my life that that stage of life where, you know, you, you kind of late teenage, early 20s, that kind of age where, where as your parents kind of step back a little bit, how much room I've got here? Step back a little bit and, uh, and, and, and kind of let you kind of start making your own decisions and, and, and stop, you know, kind of making decisions for you. I remember that stage in my life very vividly. For me, it was explicit. It was explicit. My dad sat me down and he said, son, 
Your mum and I have been looking after you. We've been raising you. We've been making our decisions for you. We trust you. Uh, from today onwards, we step away. You make your own decisions now. Right? You make your own decisions. We'll watch you. We'll be here. You make the wrong decision. We'll come down on you like a ton of bricks. But you make your own decisions now. And I remember that stage of my life. And, you know, it's a, it, it's a busy stage of life. There's lots of decisions. What am I going to study? What am I going to do for a career? Life decisions that, that kind of shape you and mould you. And I remember during that time wrestling with these kind of questions and going to Dad and saying, Dad, I've got this big issue. And Dad's saying, I told you, son, you make your own decisions now. Like, okay, Dad, I know, I know that. But I want your advice. I want your opinion. And so Dad would sit and he'd just listen. He wouldn't say anything. And I'd tell him the whole story of what I'm thinking and the pros and the cons of it all. And he'd just sit and listen. And then he'd wait till I got to the end of it. And then he'd look at me and he'd say, Son, in the light of eternity, it really doesn't matter, does it? Drove me insane, right? <laughs> Absolutely insane. I'm like, yeah, thanks, Dad. What sort of advice is that? I've come to you for advice. I want your help. In the light of eternity... It really doesn't matter, does it, son? And do you know what I've realised? Actually, it's probably some of the best advice that my dad ever gave me. Truth be told. So many of the things that we worry about, so many of the things that occupy our hearts and our minds, actually, you know what, in the light of eternity, don't matter one little bit. Paul's saying, when you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, set your heart and your minds on things that do matter for eternity. Let those be the things that occupy your mind and your heart. Let those be the things that keep you awake at night. Let those be the things that drive you, that are the focus of your life in the light of eternity. It really doesn't matter, does it, son? We live here and we are very grateful to live here. It's a massive blessing, the ministry we are a part of and we enjoy it greatly. But that doesn't mean we don't miss home at times. Um, Mother's Day, for instance. I'm busy making phone calls back to Australia today. Uh, my wife particularly. And, and she, was, she was writing to a friend of hers. It was a very similar situation to us actually. Um, She's away from home to do ministry. From, she's not living at her home. And they were writing to each other, uh, my wife and her friend, about, about being homesick, about missing home. And, and I'll never forget, this friend wrote back to my wife profound words. She said this to her. She said, yeah, I'm with you. I know what it's like to be homesick. I feel it too. But she said, you know, every time I feel homesick, it makes me realise that, that this... This actually isn't my home. And that heaven's my home. And every time I feel homesick, it reminds me that I want to live my life homesick for heaven. What a great, what a great description. Homesick for heaven. Because that's what Paul's calling us to be here, isn't he? Set your hearts and your minds on, on the things above. Be homesick for heaven. That's what Paul says. When you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, firstly, you dig your roots down deep into the faith. It's the first thing Paul calls on the Colossians to do, calls us to do, commands us to do. The second thing he commands us to do 
is to set our hearts and our minds on things above. Be homesick for heaven. The third thing that he tells the Colossians to do, I'm hoping isn't much of a surprise to you anymore. The third thing he tells them to do is there in verse 12, it's love. Oh, he tells them not to do a few things as well. Stop doing this and put that to death. But the next thing he tells them that they should be doing, chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved... See, do you see? There's the indicative again. He can't help sneak it in. Let me just remind you of these facts. Nothing to do with who you are. But let me tell you that you are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Let me remind you of that. Can't help getting that back in here before I give you an imperative. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievance you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love, Paul says. When you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, you put on love. That's the kind of structure of what Paul's saying here. You put on love, and then he's given us some examples of what it looks like to love. What does it look like to love? Well, it's going to look like being compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and bearing with one another and forgiving one another. That's what it's going to look like to put on love. That's what Paul's saying. You love. When you understand how much God has loved you, you love. When you understand how much God has forgiven you, you forgive. Jesus himself said something pretty similar to this, didn't he? The world, the whole world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, just as I have loved you. Now, I don't know what that's like for you individually, where the rubber hits the road, or for you as a church. Wouldn't it be great, though? Wouldn't it be great? If a new person walked in the door here on a Sunday morning, and they came here and they were a part of the church service. And when they left at the end of the day, they walked away saying, those people are strange. There's something different about them. They actually, they actually care about each other. You can see that. They're actually interested in me even. They don't even know me. There's something different that I experienced there that I don't experience at the workplace or at the cricket club or with the young mums in the group or at the gym or... Wouldn't it be great if this church was a place that was characterised by love? I don't know where the rubber hits the road for you. Is it this idea of forgiving as the Lord's forgiven you? It's hard, isn't it? But Paul says when you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, you're going to love. You're going to forgive. Faith Hope, love. It's the three words that Paul uses to summarise what he's heard about the Colossian Christians. It's actually, if you read through most of Paul's letters, it's the three words he chooses to use to summarise our life as followers of Jesus. But not just to summarise it, 
It's the three things he commands the Colossians to pursue as well. When you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, you dig your roots down deep in the faith. You set your hearts and your minds on things above and you love just like God's loved you. Let me pray. Dear Lord God, please help us to understand these great truths and to live in light of them, to respond to them. Help us to be those who are characterized by faith, hope and love. Amen. You've been listening to TGC's Word of the Week. Check back next week for another gospel-centered sermon. We also invite you to visit the resources section of our website, thegospelcoalition.org, to find thousands of sermons to help you understand and apply God's Word.